Our text this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. When Jesus, Peter, James, and John approached the other disciples, they saw a large crowd surrounding them and legal experts with them. Suddenly, the whole crowd caught sight of Jesus. They ran to greet him, overcome with excitement. And Jesus asked them, what are you arguing about? Someone from the crowd responded, teacher, I brought my son to you since he has a spirit that does not allow him to speak. Whenever it out of overpowers him, it throws him into a fit. He foams at the mouth, grinds his teeth and stiffens up. So I spoke to your disciples to see if they could throw it out, but they couldn't. Jesus answered them, you faithless generation, how long will I be with you? How long will I put up with you? Bring him to me. They brought him, and when the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a fit. He fell on the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked his father, how long has he been, has this been going on? And he said, since he was a child. It has often thrown him into the fire or water, trying to kill him. So if you can do anything, help us, show us compassion. Jesus said to him, if you can do anything, all things are possible for the one who has faith. At that, the boy's father cried out, I have faith, help my lack of faith. Noticing that the crowd had surged together, Jesus spoke harshly to the unclean spirit. Mute and deaf spirit, I command you to come out of him and to never enter him again. After screaming and shaking the boy horribly, the spirit came out. The boy seemed to be dead. In fact, several people said that he had died. But Jesus took his hand, lifted it up, and he arose. After Jesus went into the house, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we throw this spirit out? And Jesus answered, throwing out this kind of spirit requires prayer. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Before I really get going this morning, I just want to give a preface. Um, I did some calculation, and I realized that I have not preached a full sermon since December 18th. So have mercy on me this morning. December 18th, almost two months. It's been a long time. Thanks, Sheldon, for doing such a great job. I'm I'm a little nervous because Sheldon did such a great job that, uh, anyway. (laughs) So so, uh, I have done a lot of preparation for ministry in my life. Um, For those of you who don't know my story, I will give you my story in brief on how I came to be a pastor in the Church of the Nazarene. I was born in the Church of the Nazarene. I mean, not literally in the Church of the Nazarene. I was born as a member of the Church of the Nazarene. My parents were. Um, I I attended church my entire life. I I never really knew a time in my life where I kind of wanted to walk away from God or where I rebelled against God. Um, I call that grace because it's just not in my nature. I am a rule follower by nature, so when my heart wasn't in it, I followed the rules. Um, Raised in the church, uh, when I got to kind of the time in my life where it was time to figure out, you know, what am I going to do with my life, um, pastoring just seemed the natural choice. Um, I, I do believe God called me to be a pastor. And, and that, that, that epiphany kind of came very, very slowly at the end of a lot of prayer. But, but I had just loved being in church. I loved being at church. I loved working in the church. When I was in high school, I did everything possible I could with the church, right? I was at the church almost every day of the week. 
Um, it, it was just natural to me. And then I enrolled in an undergraduate at Northwest Nazarene University. I did an undergrad in religion, and then I did a graduate degree, a master of divinity in seminary. And, and so I've had seven full years of theological and pastoral education, formal, by the time I took my first church. Uh, but pastoring is interesting because it, it's... It's an amalgamation of a lot of different disciplines, right? You, you have some counseling in there. You've got administration in there. Um, in smaller churches, you have plumbing in there, right? Um, so on the list of things they didn't teach me in seminary is how to unclog a frozen sewer line on Good Friday. Well, I know now, been there, done that. I remember shortly after I graduated from seminary, the president of the seminary, uh, who was the president at the time that I was there, came up, and he was in Alaska, and he had the opportunity to speak at my church. And and I remember sitting down with him and him asking me, you know, what else could we have done um, as a seminary to prepare you for ministry? Right? It's a good question to ask. I I took a three-year graduate degree, right, to get my MDiv, and four years before that to get undergrad. And I could list tons of things. I said, well, I didn't feel like I had this. I'm like, it would be nice to know in counting because I don't, you know, church finances, that's a thing, right? Um, it'd be nice to be able to read a balance sheet and all sorts of stuff. And I remember him looking at me and I wasn't, I wasn't mad at the seminary. I got a great education and feel grateful for what I got. But I remember him looking at me kind of laughing and going, there's only so much we can do, right? There's only so much we can do and we can't give you an accounting degree and right? All that stuff. And that's on top of Bible and learning theology and all that sort of stuff. So, so, so all that to say this, um, there's lots of things that, that I didn't learn in seminary. Uh, one of the things that I definitely didn't learn in seminary that has tested me greatly is how to pastor in a pandemic. Now, pandemics happen from time to time. But, but pandemics like happened, you know, in 2019 and following, still happening a little bit. Those don't happen very often. I, I didn't learn anything about pastoring during the Spanish flu epidemic of 1918, 1919, 1920. I didn't learn about any of that history. I, I'm not sure why. Maybe it's just such a short period of time. I, I didn't learn about what it was like to pastor during the bubonic plague, right? Um, I didn't learn any of that stuff. And, and so when 2019 rolled around... And all of a sudden, this big major thing is happening, and we're shut down. I was ignorant of how to pastor. Ask anyone on the board at the time, and they ought to tell you that I didn't know what I was doing any more than anyone else. Perhaps less. It was a rough time trying to figure out how to pastor. And that was bad enough for me. But as the story goes, and as many of you know, the story goes with this church. After we had been shut down for quite a while, like we shut down in March thinking it'll be two weeks, and then it was Advent of the next year before we opened up again. I remember Advent of, of 2020, I was pre- or 2019 going into 2020. I was really excited. I love Advent. Christmas is my favorite time of the year. Um, I got really excited because we had been shut down for so long. We hadn't been face-to-face in so long. And I was kind of interacting only face-to-face with a very small group of people, the wonderful people who were, who were, uh, who were doing music and producing our, our worship services during that time. And I liked being with them, but I missed all of you. I missed seeing you. I missed being here with you. I remember how excited I was when we opened up again. And we did all the things, right? I mean, many of you remember. Some of you weren't here, but many of you remember. We did all the things because I'm a rule follower. 
So we did all the things. We masked and we distanced and, and we were up here and everybody was spread apart and I was standing over there behind a shield. I mean, we did everything we could. And not two weeks after we had opened up again with great excitement and fanfare, I got a call on a Monday morning. I went home with a fever yesterday and I'm getting a COVID test today. This was before all the, you know, before we didn't worry quite as much about it. It turns out that as that wake went on, um, Wednesday night I got a fever. And the next week, calls kept coming in of people, yes, I tested positive, yes, I tested positive, yes, test positive. I'm telling you some of this, some of you know this all, but some of you don't. All said and done, at the worst part for our church, we had roughly 25 people at one time who all had COVID, including myself, um, most of our worship team, um, all of, no, Katie didn't get it, but everyone else on the staff had it. All the people who were in the office area had it. I had it, Christina had it, Larry had it, Audra had it. It was bad. It was a rough time. Now, that, that's, that's bad enough, right? Because we had to close down again. I couldn't be here. I couldn't be with people. My thing to do when people are sick is I want to reach out, and, and oftentimes I want to be there with them and, and do everything I can. And, and I was in a time where I couldn't do anything. And, and then I started getting a calls that people were going to the hospital. And I'm a worrier. And this is this new thing that we haven't experienced before. And people are going to the hospital with COVID. And, and it's not looking good for some of them. At one point, we had five people from this church in the hospital at one time. I remember talking to either family members or those people and, and listening to the fears that they were expressing and feeling impotent and completely helpless because I was in quarantine and I couldn't go see them and feeling devastated because I knew nobody could go see them really. Now, I'm going to tell you about the ways that it effectively negatively. I want to say that God did some amazing things. There are people sitting in this room today <laughs> who it was looking rough for. And we weren't sure they were going to be here, but they are. Thanks be to God. That's distance I have now. <laughs> Thanks be to God. But I remember when I got the call that Jerry Anderson had passed away and feeling utterly devastated and completely lost. I often don't know what to say, but doubly so that day when I was talking to Kathy on the phone. I remember the day before Neil Klingensmith passed away. He had called me. I was on the phone with him. And he just asked me what I thought was a simple question. If I'd have known it was going to be the last conversation I had with him, I would have done something else. I would have said something else. Woulda, coulda, shoulda. And I tell this story mostly to let you know where I was at that particular time. It was rough for me. And I don't, I don't want it to be a poor Mike thing. That's not what I'm trying to say. It was rough. I've gone through some rough times in my life. But looking back, it, that is among the top two, if not top worst times of my life. Roughly no, middle of November to... Well, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure it's over in my mind yet. It was rough. 
It, it was rough because I couldn't default to the things that I would normally do during those times. So, so when someone I love is in the hospital, my first response is, I want to go see them. And I will ask if I can. Now, some people don't want to see me, and that's okay, but my first response is, go see them. But I, I couldn't go see my friends who are in the hospital. And when my friends pass away, my second response is, man, I, this is terrible and this is horrible, but I, I really want to prepare. I want to do something for them. We want to celebrate their life and talk about them and talk about the hope we have. I want to get together with my people so that we can celebrate the love of God outpoured in the life in and through this person. We couldn't do that back then. The things that I defaulted to that would help me cope in those times, I couldn't do. I didn't know how much being alone would bother me until I was forced to be alone. I was in quarantine for much of that. I couldn't, well, I probably could have. She would have let me, but again, I'm a rule follower, so I wouldn't go out of the room and talk to Jen, right? I could only FaceTime her in the next room. I, the, the, the things that I would read that would normally take my mind off of things that going on around me, I couldn't concentrate on. Uh, movies, right? you know, sometimes I'll watch a movie to escape. I mean, a Marvel movie is a great escape for me. I can just think about nothing for two and a half hours. That didn't help. I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't stop the cycle of crazy. And this may come as a shock to those who know me well, but not even Legos took my mind off it, right? That's something mindless I can do that's just repetitive and that normally can just, it takes my mind out of things. Didn't work. It was a time in my life where, where scripture, where prayer, where music, none of that helped. None of the things that I learned in seminary to cope with loss, none of the things that I had developed in my life, and I have been a disciple of Jesus, I will say seriously, since I was 15, none of that helped. None of it. I think what, what, what I was most scared of in that time was the fact that nothing was working. I felt lost, I felt alone, and I did not know how to pray. Now, again, I, I'm not sure if that resonates with anyone, but when you've known how to pray your whole life, I was 39, 40 at the time, been praying and had a comfort in that for m most of my life. I did not and could not figure out how to pray. That was hard for me. So I mentioned that to say this song really resonates with me. The song that we just sang resonates with me, and I listened to it a lot in those hours and days. Switching gears to our text today. That's not this picture I want. Like I said, I haven't done this in a while. The picture I want is gone. I don't know where it went. Anyway, so here's the story of our text today. Here's some context of where we are in our text. Jesus has just been up on top of Mount Tabor with his, with his disciples. Uh, you may be familiar with the story. Jesus goes up with Peter, James, and John, right? He's standing on the top. They're praying, and all of a sudden, Jesus turns white, like brilliant white. His clothes are white. He's shiny. He's revealed in his heavenly glory. 
right? And, and, and the disciples are freaked out, scared, weirded out, not sure what's going on, can think of nothing to do but fall on their faces in worship, right? And as they look up, they look up, and who's there standing with Jesus but Peter, James, and John? Or not Peter. Eliza and Moses. There, I got the right names. Elijah and Moses are standing there with Jesus and they're talking with him. And, and, and Mark just says that they're talking with him. Um, Luke says that they're talking about what's going to happen in Jerusalem, his exodus to Jerusalem. And it's crazy stuff. And, you know, Peter just babbles off the mouth as Peter tends to do. And, and, and all this happens. And a voice from heaven says, this is my son and whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And then everything kind of goes back to normal. And Jesus and the three disciples come down the hill. What a strange, like, descent that must have been. And, and how kind of jarring it must have been that when they come down from that hill, this, this is what's just happened, transfiguration, Jesus revealed heavenly glory, Moses and Elijah, and they come down and they find that Jesus' disciples are arguing with the crowds. In fact, they're arguing with scribes. Now, now let me just give you the context, right? So, so Jesus says, what are you guys arguing about? And a guy pipes up in the crowd, I brought my son to your disciples to be healed and they couldn't do it. Okay, that's an interesting explanation of what had happened. But how did that end up as an argument between the scribes and the disciples? Think about that for a moment. Look at how weird that is. The, the, The disciples couldn't heal the man's son. Why did the scribes get involved? I mean, I don't have a good answer for that. I'm just wondering why. I mean... I guess I've been on Twitter, so I guess I know that this happens, but, but there's just, just arguments. So they're coming down um, out of this wonderful, holy, and fantastic experience, and it's just chaos. I've I, I I got to imagine Jesus like, I left for 20 minutes. What's going on? Like, I just stepped out. But the man comes, and he says, I brought my son to be healed by your disciples, and they couldn't do it. And, and we learn what's going on with this, this boy, this perhaps child, although some of the language indicates that he might not be a child anymore. So, uh, my, my child is a demon, and, and the demon often throws him into the fire, into the wire, water, and tries to kill him, and he foams at the mouth, and, and all sorts of stuff like that. And, and on top of it all, the, 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 the child can't speak. And, and so it's a, it's a story of a father who has a son who is sick, who is possessed, and, and he is just desperate to find some healing. We, we, we have to think in our mind that he has tried everything. In my mind, this is not a, oh, well, this is happening. I'll go to Jesus first. I, I, I really think this is sort of a Hail Mary pass, right? Super Bowls today. Let's use some, some Super Bowl imagery, right? It's fourth quarter. There, there's no chance, and yet he's going to throw a Hail Mary pass, right? I'm just going to throw something at the wall and see what sticks. Nothing else has worked. Maybe Jesus and his disciples can help. Jesus, by this point in his ministry, had been around. He, he had healed lots of people. So, so doubtless this man probably heard that, that Jesus was a healer. And so he comes just in, in vain hope. God, I just something, some, some other tactic, some quack, whatever. Maybe this will work. That's the kind of language. If you read that, what the father says, I, maybe they can do something. That's how it sounds in my head. And, and so he brings his son to the disciples and, and the disciples have been empowered to do this sort of thing. Let's, let's be sure. Let's, let's be clear about that. The other gospels say that they're pretty good at it as a matter of fact. 
that they're able to accomplish these things, that the demons submit to them. Like they're, they're excited about this when they report to Jesus. And yet this instance, it, nothing happens, right? The disciple, I don't know what kind of things that they did. Maybe they just prayed. Maybe they did more elaborate things. I don't know, but whatever it is, didn't work. And so it didn't work. And so I don't know how, again, I don't know how the scribes got involved in it and why it turned into an argument, but it did. And that's what Jesus walks into. He walks into this chaotic scene of a desperate man and his tortured son. And the son just simply, the guy simply saying, I just want healing for my son. Jesus kind of... (laughs) looks around, seems a little bit frustrated and exasperated, calling them a faithful gener- faithless generation. I'm not sure if he's talking to the disciples, he's talking to the crowds, the scribes, or the man. I don't, it doesn't really say. He just sort of addresses it out there. But after he says that, he sort of gets exasperated, and he says, bring, bring him to me. Bring the child to me. And so the father brings his son to Jesus and immediately as the son sees Jesus and it says the demon sort of manifested, however that works, and, and he fell aground and started foaming at the mouth, doing all the, all the things. I mean, it looks a lot like an epileptic fit. Demonic possession, epileptic fit, well, this kid's bad. It's in a bad way. Now, astute readers of Mark know that Jesus has come to confront the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of the power that would oppose him. And so this wouldn't be unusual for us to see. It's interesting as the, as the, the son has this fit, Jesus asked the father, how long has he been like this? And the father says, I imagine with great pain in his voice as any parent seeing their child suffering since he was a child, this has been happening. So we don't know how old the guy is, the boy is, but this has been happening a long time. Since he was a child. And so the father says something like this. So we brought him here in case that you can help. That you would have compassion on us. If you could do anything, could you have compassion on us is what Jesus says. Is what the man says to Jesus, excuse me. Jesus' response is interesting to me. Because it's almost as if he's affronted by what the man says. Again, all reading of scripture is interpretation because I'm interpreting it through my own lens. But this is what I hear. I hear Jesus saying, if I can help. If I can help. Don't you know that all things are possible to those who believe? Now, I'd be interested, so feel free to stop me after service if you hear that differently. (laughs) But that's what I hear. If I can help. I, I don't think Jesus is offended per se. But what Jesus seems to indicate is that, is that, like, he's a little bit uncomfortable with, like, I'm not a Hail Mary. I'm not just some sort of foolish hope. It's this not for question, in fact, is what he seems to say. He says, actually, for the one who believes, all things are possible. Or or is our translation that we read from this morning, if you have faith, all things are possible. And so what does the man do in response? 
the man falls on his knees and says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. I'm going to pause here a moment, and we're going to listen to the song again. And again, you've got the lyrics in front of you. They'll also be on the screen. But I'd just like to listen and hear this through the context of this story. I believe, he says, Lord. Help my unbelief. So let's go ahead and play that song. Oh. Oh. Brilliant. I know the Lord is nigh and would but cannot pray. For Satan meets me when I try and frights my soul away. And frights my soul away.
So I admit that during that very difficult time where we were struggling with COVID around here, I had this song pretty much on loop. This was my only prayer. I didn't know how to pray. I believe God can do stuff, but I need to help. So I pray to help my unbelief. Uh, this song is, uh, this version is recorded by a, a group called Red Mountain Music. Um, they, th- this group took the opportunity to rediscover and re-record a bunch of old hymns. They called it the Gadsby Project. Um, so there's a, a hymnal called the Gadsby Hymnal that's just a collection of a lot of wonderful hymns, this one included. Um, and so they re-recorded this and released it um, in this version. The, the chorus of this particular version is actually written by them. It's not part of the original song. Um, in fact, the original song um, was by a, an author that probably most of you know, but probably I'd, I'd be surprised if anyone in this church knew that he was associated with this song. I didn't know. Um, that's not saying much, but I didn't know. Um, so this particular song was penned by um, John Newton, um, who wrote another song you might be familiar with called Amazing Grace. Um, so same guy. Um, so, so John Newton was um, at one time a sailor conscripted into the British Navy. Um, he was at one time a slave trader. He uh, was the captain of a slave trip. He was at one period in his life a slave. He was actually sold into slavery at one point in his life. And later on in his life became an Anglican priest. Um, so he wrote this particular hymn um, when he was the priest of the Orley Parish. Um, he was called there and he wrote a bunch of songs and he published something called the Orly Hymnal, um, of which Amazing Grace is a part, although it's not called that in the original hymnal, um, nor is this song called Help My Unbelief in the original. Um, but he published this uh, somewhere prior. I, we don't actually have a, a, um, a date on which he wrote it, but we know he wrote it some, sometime prior to 1775 because he actually references this song in his journals. Uh, in 1775. So it's somewhere around them. So, so for, for context, he is roughly contemporaneous with John Wesley and Charles Wesley in that great sort of hymn tradition of the Anglican church as they both were. Um, so, so he wrote the song and we, we don't have much about the occasion of him writing it. Um, we don't know why. We don't know the particular occasion that caused him to want to write it, what he was going through when he did. Um, but we know he wrote it and we know he sung it. This song was one he wrote, he published in, and this is the handwritten actual manuscript of this song as it was submitted to the publisher. Um, submitted to the publisher, which was published as the Orly Hymnal, um, which he used. And he used the music out of this hymnal, some of it written by him, most of it written by him, some of it written by a, a co-author of his who was in that parish as well. Um, Calpins, I think is his name. Um, and they, they published this together and used it basically for the Sunday evening services of their church. Um, and, and I'm going to read something to you because, it, again, in, in 1775, he actually referenced this song uh, in one of his journal entries. And I think it's instructive to kind of see what was going on in his heart 
uh, when he wrote about the song to give you an idea of the, the sort of occasion. He writes this, this re- week is brought round again, crowned with mercies and a continued exemption from a heavy crosses, except that under which I groan within. I have felt it and I have lamented it this week. I think I thirst after nearer communion with the Lord in secret for my prayers are wild, incoherent and wandering as a dream. He is pleased to stand at a distance, most deservedly, and alas, what can I do without him? It is a mercy if I can so much as cry with some real desire. Return, O Lord, how long? This evening I have tried to seek his blessing upon tomorrow, but alas, in what manner? I really enjoyed just reading that and thinking about what was going on in his heart, that, that he was conflicted. He, he, he didn't have particular reason to be sad, and yet he was groaning underneath a heavy heart and a heavy mind and desired God to come and to be real. But God, it says, was pleased to stand far off. And so he mentions, this was on Saturday, March 4th, 1775 was a Saturday. He mentions in his journal the next day about how they sang this hymn. And how he felt conflicted and and tortured and and how he desperately wanted to believe, but needed the Lord's help to believe. So I want to talk just briefly about the the stanzas. So originally in this song has nine stanzas. We won't go through them all. Um, As it was re-recorded, as we sung and as we heard today, it's four stanzas with a chorus in between each. All of the stanzas speak to this internal groaning and this internal pain of desiring something, desiring after God, desiring after God's will, desiring after the things of God, and yet being unable to attain them, being unable to reach. So it begins by saying, I know the Lord is nigh. I would but cannot pray for Satan meets me when I try. And frights my soul away. I don't know if any of you have been there in that place. Where you pray and you cry out and you feel that your prayers hit the ceiling and come crashing back down on your head. I I certainly hope I'm not the only one who has experienced that. But this song gives voice and gives rise to this idea that even within the deepest committed Christian, sometimes we know what should be and yet cannot feel it and do not seem in that moment to know it. For Satan meets me when I try and frights my soul away. And then he goes on to say, I would but can't repent, though I endeavor often. The stony heart can ne'er relent until Jesus makes it soft. He expresses there this idea that what we do and how we proceed and how we move forward, well, we can't. But for the grace of God and Christ's mercy, that that even repentance itself, even the desire to want, even the desire to to seek Jesus comes from the spirit at work in us. In the church of the Nazarene, we call this prevenient grace, by the way. That it is the grace of God that goes before, that prepares us, that draws us near, that we can on our own do nothing. We cannot repent. We cannot be holy. We cannot do anything but by the grace of God that comes before, that draws us in. And here the the author gives, gives rise to this idea and this understanding that sometimes I want to, but my heart is hard. And I cannot move unless God 
unless Christ, by his grace and mercy, would enable me to do so. In the fourth stanza, I would but cannot love the wooed by love divine. No arguments have the power to move a soul so base as mine. Again, this, this, this deep and abiding understanding that the movement comes not at our own initiative, but at the initiative of God. God makes my heart soft. All the arguments in the world cannot convince me unless God would work in me by the power of God's spirit. Again, in my mind, I'm drawn back to what's going on at Asbury right now. It does not happen because they willed it. It happens because God moved and they were ready. They did not manufacture revival. They were present and God moved. And they listened. This is what Newton is praying for. God, I want to move, but I cannot move unless you enable me to do so. Then he says, I would, but cannot rest in God's most holy will. I know what he appoints is best, and yet I murmur at it still. Again, the the conflicting in there. Do you hear this back and forth of, I know God wants to, and I know God can, and yet I cannot get there. I I know God can do this. I know God wants this. I know God does this. I I know God wants me to love and to care and to be concerned and all this stuff. And yet here I am, and I just cannot push myself there. I cannot do it, but by the grace and the mercy of God. push and pull the tug. And so here's where I'm grateful for Red Mountain Music and them adding this this chorus in there. Because if if we read this, if you were to read all nine stanzas, you would come away with it and kind of go, there's no resolution. There's not much. And there is truth in that for many of us at many times. Resolution has not yet come. What I like that Red Mountain Music put in there is this prayer. Lord, help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. My help, it comes from thee. Now, the language that my help, it comes from me does come from this original manuscript. And for me, that's the central idea of this entire thing. All of this, when I read it, my central idea is someone who, who is in a place that I have been. I, 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 I want to pray, but I can't. I, I want to intercede, and yet I can't. God, I, my prayers are doing nothing. God, I, I believe, but God, I, help my unbelief. I believe. Help my unbelief. This is the prayer here of a father who was desperate to see his son healed. Jesus says all things are possible for those who believe. You're a parent who wants their child healed. And Jesus said to you, all things are possible for those who believe. How do you feel if you believe, but you just can't quite get there? God, I want this to be true. What do I have to do to make this happen? What do I have to do to make this be true? Think of what's going on in that father's heart. I think some of you know what's going on in that father's heart. Lord, I believe. I know you can do it, but he's still sick. Help my unbelief. 
I don't think Jesus is saying, just believe enough. I don't think that's what's going on here. I don't think Jesus is looking at that father and says, no, you need to believe more. You have 68% belief, you need 70, and you're not there. Sorry, can't help. Of all the things that are going on in this passage that I don't know about, I'm pretty sure that's not what's happening. The father just falls on his knees and says, help my unbelief. God, I want to know this is possible. And I think it is. You've said it is. And I've come to you. God, help whatever is lacking. Help my unbelief. Jesus could lecture here. Jesus could lecture any of us at any time and be right. I appreciate that Jesus doesn't lecture here. He doesn't say just a little bit more, come a little bit further. In fact, Jesus doesn't say anything to the father. Jesus turns to the boy, addresses the demon. Demon comes out. Crowd thinks the boy is dead. Jesus knows better. And he lifts him up, gives him back to his father, restored, healed well. What happened? What happened between bringing the the kid to the disciples and bringing him to Jesus? What happened? Did his faith tick up to 70%? I don't think so. So why now? Why then? What happened? What was Jesus waiting for? If I told you I knew exactly what was going on, I'd be lying. So I'm not going to tell you that. But I think, I think what's going on here is Jesus isn't looking for more belief. Like I need, I need 70% of you believing that I can do this. I think it's just the fact that the father comes and says, I believe in you. I believe you can do this. It was a Hail Mary pass. There's no doubt. That's what Jesus says in the beginning. He says, if. I think what changes in the father is, is not that he's desperate. It's that he finally sees, right? This person can and will do it. And the help I need does not come from out here. does not come from just screwing up my courage a little bit more about believing just 2% more. It comes in just believing in this one. Lord, I believe. Lord, you help my unbelief. He recognizes that healing as well as belief has its source in one place. In God through Christ. So he says, help my unbelief. I don't think the situation of the unbelief part is really resolved. I mean, the son gets healed. But, but does the doubt go away? Does the wonder go away? Does the need for more come, go away? I, I don't think so. I, I think there's still tension. There's, there's still this in there that, that Jesus said, okay, now you believe enough, and this is the way you believe enough. It's still unresolved. But the miracle of the story and the wonder of the story is despite the prayer of unbelief. He admits, I don't believe enough. Help my unbelief. Even in the midst of that, Jesus says, that's enough. Coming to me with that prayer, that's enough. That's what I need. It does not say a lack in you. 
It just says that what you need is found here in me, Jesus says. He later on goes to debrief with his disciples and says something enigmatic like this kind only comes out through prayer. Did you notice Jesus didn't pray? Jesus wasn't praying anywhere in the scripture. It's, it's strange. And it wasn't that the father didn't pray, I don't think. Tension is still there all throughout the story. And yet, amidst the tension, amidst the doubt, amidst the unbelief, guess what? God still works. God still acts. It's almost as if God's act and work is not dependent on us. Let me say that more strongly. That was a very weak sentence. God's action and activity does not entirely, does not at all depend on us. God works. In fact, even our capacity to believe is a gift from God. And so I think what God wants from us is not 70% faith, verse 68. God wants us to grow in faith. Christ wants us to come to him. But I think, I think at the root of this, at the very least, the root of the gospel Christ wants us to believe in him. To know where our hope lies. As I was in quarantine, worried about my friends, there was one thing I was abundantly aware of, that I could do nothing there. I could pray, yes. Yes. But God had to do the acting. And so my prayer was, God, I believe you can work. And though I kick against it, I am willing to go with your will on this. Lord, help me believe. I believe in you. Lord, help my unbelief. What this song does for me is reminds me that sometimes it is okay to feel that way. And perhaps, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief is the most genuine prayer we can pray. It doesn't worry me when people have doubts. It worries me when we have it all figured out. That might be a function of my personality. this thing is so big. It, it, it's so big. I can't, I can't imagine what's going on. I can't imagine the chess pieces that God is dealing with. I can't pretend to have it all figured out. What I really appreciate about this text and this song is at least one person saying it's okay sometimes to not have it all figured out. As long as we know where our help lies. My help does not lie within myself and me screwing it up and my courage in doing better. Believe it or not, the gospel does not lie in us doing better. Sin management is, is not God's primary concern. God's primary concern is calling a people after his own image. 
Because the sin management, when we follow him, takes care of itself. What God wants is us. What God wants is us submitted and knowing in whom our help lies. And for me, that's what this song gets most right. Help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. My help, it comes from thee. For at the other end of death, wherever it it may be, that other end may be, is resurrection. The boy in this story, it's a story of resurrection. But the demon comes out, they think he's dead. And that's not accidental reporting there. I don't think Mark wastes words. The shortest of our gospels, he doesn't waste words. But what happens when they think he's dead? Jesus reaches out a hand and pulls him up. He is brought back to life, restored to life. For those who believe and come to Christ, even in our doubt, on the other side of death is resurrection. Metaphorically, and literally, for us who are in Christ. But our hope lies in Jesus Christ alone, not in our powers of persuasion, not in our believing enough, but in our believing in him. As we come and say, Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. And so this morning I want to end first with communion, then with song. Uh, For those of you who did not grab communion on your way in, there is communion right outside. And I'll talk for a little bit so that you can go out and get it because it's important. For me, when all else fails, when my answers fail, when the question, pastor, how do you pastor in a pandemic. When, when, when the answer to that is, I have no idea. I pray, Lord, I believe in you. Help my unbelief. For my hope lies in Christ and in Christ alone. My help, it comes from thee. And on the other side of death for us is promised resurrection. And that promise is guaranteed in Christ, for he has gone before us. When I get confused and when I don't know and when I don't have answers and when I say, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief, I am comforted knowing that others have gone before me in that question. You might remember Elijah who's under the broom tree saying, God, kill me now. I alone am left. You did something great on top of Mount Carmel and yet now they still want to kill me. Just let them do it. (laughs) Elijah, the prophet of prophets. God, kill me now. What does God do? Tells him to take a nap, and he gives him a snack and sends him on his way. But even Jesus on the cross, as he is being crucified, looks up to heaven and says, Eli, Eli, lemesabachthani. God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you have doubts that God is with you, know that Christ has gone before you, even into doubt. 
and yet was raised to new life. Christ has gone before us, even into death. But as Paul writes, if we are united with him in his death, through our baptism, so too we will be united him in new life. We will go with him into resurrection. Even when we don't know where to go or what to do, or even if our prayers are getting through, we have one who has gone before and who has promised to take us with him, even through the valley of the shadow of death, into resurrection and eternal life. And this is how we celebrate that. When we're at our wits end, Jesus gives us a snack. But he offers himself to us in his broken body and his shed blood and says, in this, go. In your doubt and your pain, but I go with you. For you have been united with me in my death and resurrection. The Lord himself ordained this holy sacrament. In fact, he commanded his disciples to partake of the bread and the wine, which are emblems of his broken body and shed blood. We're reminded today that this is his table. It's not my table. It's not a table of the church of Nazarene. It is the Lord's table. We are reminded of this today. So this, this meal, this, this remembrance, this, this snack, if you will, is a feast for all who are his disciples. So with any who have with true repentance forsaken their sins and have believed the Christ and salvation are welcome to draw near and take these emblems by faith and thereby partake in the life of Jesus Christ to your soul's comfort and joy. So let us remember that this is a memorial of the death and the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ and is also a token of his coming again. Let us not forget that we are one at one table with the Lord. Let us pray. Almighty God, our heavenly father, who out of your tender mercy gave us your holy son, Jesus Christ, to suffer death upon the cross for, your rede- for our redemption. Hear us, Lord God, we humbly beseech you. Grant that as we receive these gifts, these, your emblems, these bread and this cup, Lord God, we receive them in remembrance of you, of your death and your resurrection. May we be also made partakers of the benefits of his anointing sacrifice. We are reminded that on the same night that our Lord was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me whenever you drink it. Lord God, may we come before you in true humility and faith as we partake of this holy sacrament through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. This is the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is broken for you. May it preserve you blameless unto eternal life. Take and eat in remembrance that Christ has died for you. This is the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was shed for you, and may it preserve you blameless unto everlasting life. Drink this in remembrance that Christ's blood was shed for you, and be thankful. 
Let us pray. Lord God, we thank you for your grace and for your mercy. We thank you that you have given us your son. Lord, that in our doubt and in our pain, Lord, when we don't know what to pray, you are with us. Lord, that we are not alone, even in doubt. We are not alone, for you have gone there with us. You have gone there before us. And you have promised that if we are united with you in your death, we will also be united with you in the resurrection to eternal life. Lord God, we thank you for these gifts, for your grace, and for your love.